0: This is the Offscript podcast. My name is Mark Coffin, and this week I am not your host. We're going to share a rerun of an older episode of the podcast this week. And I'll tell you about that in a moment. First, I want to ask you a question and I'd like you to email or tweet me your answer to that question. You can email me at offscript at or tweet at springtideco. The question is this, why do you listen to this podcast? What need does it satisfy for you? And if you can tell us, how can we serve that need better? The reason I'm asking that question is purely for internal purposes. I've been experimenting with the format of this show since we finished telling the story of former MLAs uh, in late 2017. The listenership of this podcast has grown slightly since we started exploring more timely topics on the podcast. And in order for us to bring you an episode each week, it's important for us to know why you're listening. Producing podcasts has been a really interesting experience compared to other content that I've created uh, for this organization and others in the past. While we're by no means fighting off advertisers who want to get in on this, it is a medium that for us allows us to reach hundreds of people each week with long form content that uh, really we haven't figured out any other way to deliver uh, this kind of content to that large of an audience on a regular basis um, on a budget. Uh, That said, we really don't know much about you, and that's a problem if we want to keep serving your needs. Podcasts don't lend themselves well to commenting or sharing Uh, on social media in the same way that content like videos and articles do. Um, We know that you're often listening to them when you're on the move or doing chores and not in front of uh, the screens on your phones or laptops. Uh, The main way I find out what people think about what we're doing is really just through happenstance. It's when people I already know uh, approach me and tell me what they think about what we've been doing on the podcast lately. And oftentimes I would have never guessed that that person was a listener uh, to to our podcast if it weren't for that conversation. Uh, And it's Valuable, but I'm only connecting with the people I already know and I know there's probably people out there, uh, perhaps you, uh, who I don't know and I, and I want to know kind of who you are and why you're listening. Um, so all of this to say, I know you're out there. I know you're listening. Thank you, Apple statistics. And in order to keep doing this and doing it better, I'd like to know why. Why do you listen? What need does it satisfy for you? And how can we serve that need better? And I say we because another reason I'm asking this question is because I'd like to bring some more voices into the show, some more diverse voices, more people than just me that can contribute something on a regular basis. But before I do that, before I uh, put some invitations out there, I really want to make sure I understand uh, who our audience is. So send me an email at offscript at tweet at springtide, we're at springtide co on Twitter. Why do you listen? What need does it satisfy for you? And how can we serve that need better? This week, I'll leave you with a show we originally aired on April 13th of 2017, almost exactly one year ago, uh, where host Sandra Hannibalm walks you through the experience of the former MLAs we spoke to, the women we spoke to, for season one of the Offscript podcast. And the reason I'm sharing it this week is because April of 2018 is the 100th anniversary of when the first women voted in Nova Scotia. So 100 years ago, not all women, but for the first time ever, the first women in Nova Scotia elections voted. There were all kinds of other rules that still prevented not all women from voting, but the first women began voting in 1918, 100 years ago. So a year ago, we released this podcast. 100 years ago, women started voting. Take a listen to it. After the cold open, you'll hear a beautiful and powerful essay that Sandra wrote that really is worth listening to. Here you go.
1: I remember going to visit the legislature when I was in high school. I mean, it was just a room full of white-suited men that, you know, it was just uh, when I would be, I think I would be in grade 11 or 12 at that time, and it's just something that would never, a young woman would never dream of ever finding herself sitting down there. But I remember, I remember looking down and being in awe of it, but you know, it
2: just never crossed my mind. Gee, I'd like to do that someday because it was just not a possibility. It was really pretty freaky because I was the only woman and there were 51 men, none of them knew Democrats. So, you know, there were taunts that would come from the back benches on the other side. Sometimes we'd be along the lines of, why don't you stay home, look after your kids and
3: things like that.
0: And what was it that uh, made you decide to run for office yourself? Uh,
3: I thought that I had, um, I had something to offer. Um, as a person, not only just as a woman, but as a person, uh, there was a, a tremendous lack of participation by women. I, I wish they wouldn't talk about gender
1: parity. I wish they wouldn't talk, make it, say it that way. Yeah, but why not say? You know, why is it the women are making parity? Why don't they do it the other way around? More women than men. No. We're going to have just as many men as we have women.
4: You're listening to On The Record, Offscript, and I'm your host, Sandra Hannibal. Offscript is a journey through the career of Nova Scotia MLAs as told through the eyes of former lawmakers themselves. The main tool that we used to connect with their experience was the exit interview. Exit interviews are used in workplaces to gain honest or frank insight about the job from departing or departed employees. We use them to learn what life is like for MLAs in Nova Scotia politics. All of our interviews were on the record, but what we heard didn't sound like the usual script. In the next several episodes of Offscript, you'll hear stories about exclusion, stories from MLAs who were made to feel they did not belong in the legislature. In some cases, that feeling of exclusion began on the campaign trail, through interaction with voters and the party, and in other cases, it was the legislature itself and fellow MLAs that were unwelcoming. This week on Offscript, we explore the unique experiences of the women who ran for and won seats in the Nova Scotia legislature, the challenges they faced in getting there, and the challenges awaiting them once they arrived. I've always had a kind of alien curiosity about Nova Scotia. I grew up traveling between Ontario and the state of Maryland, and I probably spent three total years trying to convince my mom to move here before we did. I wanted to go where I felt like I had some roots. My grandmother immigrated to Calgary after landing at Pier 21 on the waterfront. And because I can't really know where my mom's ancestors came from, I set my roots here in Nova Scotia. To me, having deep roots is a big privilege, and Nova Scotia is a place where quite a few of them intersect. British settlers established the first Canadian responsible government in Nova Scotia when men dominated politics exclusively. Today, the legislature is still mostly settler ancestors, and of course most of them are men, but I wasn't fully aware of this when I moved to Halifax. I became aware of it around the time I started volunteering with Springtide, a year and a half ago, when I began transcribing interviews for Offscript. I was responsible for hanging on to every word the descendants of these settlers said, slowing down the track and replaying the same sentence in slow motion to type it out. The transcribing process is usually four times slower than the length of the recording, so an hour of tape takes a whole afternoon to transcribe. For me, this was like touring in a foreign city in slow motion. No matter how many times I listened to these words, no matter how slowly or Sometimes hilariously they were expressed, I felt like everything that was said was something I had never heard before. I'm a young, mixed-race woman, and I'm raised by a single immigrant mother. Statistically, the chances of me or her walking into the legislature and seeing a plaque with our family name on it are pretty slim. That point really came home for me when I listened to the second of many interviews I later heard. It was George Archibald describing a sense of delight at realizing he was the first in his family to sit in the legislature in 100 years. I thought that must be touching walking into Province House and seeing that one of your ancestors sat there a hundred years ago. But then he revealed that more than a hundred years before that, Truro had a strong history of Archibalds in the legislature. When Sir Adams George Archibald helped bring Confederation to Canada over a hundred years ago, He was following six family members that held seats before him. I came to think that this lineage was a big part of why he felt comfortable in the house, even when he was being criticized or targeted. He had a lot of reasons to believe he did belong there, and fewer reasons to think he didn't. In the city of Nova Scotia politics, he was an Archibald, and Archibalds before him paved the roads of the city I was touring, listening to stories from people who also lived there. George fell into politics because he was George. George who had a farm. George with political lineage dating back to before Confederation. The history of George's family made me very interested in a particular question. How do people get to political power in Nova Scotia if they're not in Archibald?
5: Oh, well, I'm lucky I'm strong. You know, I, I, I could never be a pushover and I was never intimidated by anybody, so it was tough, but I was tough, so that made it easier, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly running, knocking on doors, and I knocked on every door in the riding the first election. I walked off shoes like you wouldn't believe. Mm -hmm. So I can remember one day going to a door and a man saying, I'll never vote for a woman. You're a skirt, and uh, you're a nitpicker, and you've got a reputation of... um, this that and the other thing and I took him on and and I said you know being a nitpicker means I pay attention to detail and so what if I'm female I'm an effective person that can get work done you know so we had quite a debate and he still wasn't going to vote for me but three days later he came and met me at my headquarters and said you've got my vote he said I've talked to a lot of people about you and he said you're getting my vote so I thought good because yes I'm a feminist and yes I'm a nitpicker and you can turn negatives into positives. People
2: said how can you stand going to all those stores? do you feel stupid standing at the doorstep saying you know I hear I want your vote. just found it fascinating. I loved every bit of it. You know it was just always interesting. About, hmm, I wonder who's going to answer this story. And Then you got a real sense of this being a microcosm of society especially in the earlier years because there weren't that many women that had run so you'd knock on the door and uh, perhaps the woman in the household would answer the door and she'd say, oh, I don't know anything about politics, I'll get my husband. i said, no, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm much more interested in talking to you.
4: That's Alexa McDonough. She was the first woman to lead any political party in Nova Scotia. And she was an MLA for a Halifax writing.
2: Yes, the first campaign I ran in, there were two members. They both knew they were going to lose their seats. They knew they were in trouble. The CCA, you know, NDP members, <clears throat> both from Cape Breton, and there'd never been a member from the mainland to sit in the legislature. And they both persuaded me to run for the leadership. And they said, "We'll both run, but we want you to know that we want you to run, and you will win it, and we will support you if you win it." So don't be reluctant to run because you think if they both turn their backs because they are disappointed, defeated. There goes our only base in Cape Breton and then I'm left with the only, if I were lucky enough to win a seat in Halifax but as it turned out we all won our seats. Alexa us.
4: told us that having a supportive husband on the campaign trail complemented her work-life balance.
2: So he'd go to the door with my two little kids in tow and knock on the door and say, hi, I'm Mr. Alexa McDonough, these are my kids. But he used to participate in the press galleries, press clubs, trivia contests. And the same exact same era in which I got elected, Margaret Thatcher got elected as Prime Minister of the UK and he was in a trivia contest, and I just happened to walk into the room at the back at the because I'd been out canvassing or something. And the question to him was, what is Margaret Thatcher's husband's name? And he said, I don't remember his name, but I sure feel sorry for the son of a bitch. <laughs> and he just always used his humor that way, and people thought, you yeah. know. It, it was kind of liberating for women because they realized that they could do something different politically from their husbands without the whole world falling apart. And uh, I think that helped to empower quite a lot of women. I mean, there weren't that many other women who would run either. Muriel Duckworth, by the time she ran, was a grandmother. And so you weren't really thinking about that. But it made me really, really think about the fact that for a lot of women, one of the obstacles, after you get past thinking, well, it's a men's world and who needs it, is just the domestic side of all of that. Because if a man runs, nobody's expecting him to be home making the meals or going to home and school meetings or whatever. These days, it's a much more egalitarian society. So there just wasn't the same degree of segmentation or separation, you know, role model separation. But in those days there was, so people would, Arrive with casseroles because they'd be thinking, oh, who's feeding the husband and the kids? Were you the first
0: woman?
2: No, I wasn't. Um, First woman in the legislature, just a minute, I have to think about this for a minute.
4: The first female MLA was Gladys Porter in 1961. But Alexa McDonough, she encouraged the woman who would become the second female MLA and the first female cabinet minister. Maxine Cochran, to consider entering politics as a candidate.
2: And then the second woman was a really lovely woman, a progressive conservative. When we had progressive conservatives, um, Maxine Cochran and her husband had been a very progressive conservative cabinet minister, and he was really a lovely man, and he was always very respectful of me, unlike a lot of the others. And uh, uh, I actually had it reported back to me by some of the other conservatives that he used to really get upset in caucus meetings saying, you know, we're really looking pretty bad out there if you keep taunting her, you know, Mm -hmm. making those kind of sexist comments, so please don't do it. And then he died in office. A lovely man, Bruce Cochran, and his widow at his funeral... You know, I just spoke to her, expressed my condolences. And she said she they had a wonderful life, wonderful relationship. And she said, I don't know who can fill his shoes. And I said, well, nobody except you, Maxine. And she, oh, no, not me. Well, anyway, so she did. She ran and won.
4: We spoke with David Nantes, who was also at that funeral by chance. And he recalled the impact that Maxine had on the tone of meetings when she was in office.
3: Yeah, I was in cabinet. She uh, she improved the tone of our cabinet meetings dramatically.
4: Just the style she brought. She was very experienced. She had worked in
3: the communications business with her husband, public relations. So she was very polished. But she also had a very kind of focused, people focus.
4: When asked to expand on what he meant by improving the tone, he said,
3: "Made it less of a old boys club, which but when you're when you're in a tight group and spending many hours together, you tend to come become that way."
0: I know that some of the female MLAs felt
3: that it was a um, it was a place that was strongly male in its in its tone and um, not necessarily on the floor of the house or in debate but
0: um, uh, sometimes in informal comments uh, outside um, and uh, uh, you know I'm, I'm certainly prepared to believe that this is this is an accurate reflection. One thing we've heard a lot of uh, when we've interviewed female MLAs or former mm-hmm. MLAs who are female, mm-hmm. uh, is the sexism in Nova Scotia politics and in the House mm-hmm. in particular. Was that something you would experience as well?
6: I don't know. Um I wouldn't say specifically, but I
4: would say that it, th- there's a very masculine ethos. The ex-MLAs that we interviewed usually explain the life of an MLA in male terms, using words like he instead of she to refer to hypothetical persons, which is not exactly surprising considering that most MLAs are men. However...
1: I had several experiences of people... Uh, fact, I don't know how to say it exactly, but...
4: Eleanor Norrie was invited to the opening of a new curling rink, and she was running late, so she called her daughter, who picked her up, and drove her to the rink.
1: We pulled up, and there was a parking place right by the door. I was all good, there's a spot right there, because the parking places were all filled. She, we, she was driving, and she pulled in, and there was a man standing there, looking very important. He came running over to the car, and he said, You can't park there, that's for the minister, and he's not here yet. <laughs> I am the minister. <laughs> I that you'd run into that more and more and more. You know we can't start yet because the minister's not here yet. Well, uh, I'm standing there and I'm the minister. It's just it was it happened more and more and often than you can imagine mm. that people would expect me to be a man and then if I wasn't, they didn't know quite what to do with me. Mm.
4: In the entire history of the Nova Scotia Legislature, there have been more MLAs named John. there have been women with any name. When Mark was reviewing the script for this episode, he asked me what the total number of women MLAs versus MLAs named John were. There have been 42 female MLAs, and that's including the 15 that are currently sitting, and I started counting with the first General Assembly in Nova Scotia. Once I got to 50 guys named John, and I hadn't even gotten halfway through the total assemblies, I called it and stopped counting. After women won the right to vote, 40 years passed before the first female MLA won her seat here. Today, women make up half of the population of Nova Scotia, but they only make up a quarter of the legislature. Alexa McDonough, she was only the third woman to sit in our province house, but what she faced inside and outside of the legislature wasn't new to women then, and it hasn't gone away.
6: Was the
7: noise that you had to speak over? Was it heckling? Was it, it was definitely heckling. Um, l- a lot of comments would be, "Oh, sit down, shut up, you don't know what you're talking about." Th- that it was, it was quite derogatory. Uh, they, you know, sit d- Oh, sit down was uh, was was a lot, a lot of time in that you'd um, you would get back across. Okay.
0: And would you hear it from men and women, or just men?
7: It was Male Voices and it was the particular, there was a a group that it was continual.
4: Ramona Jennings was the education minister for the NDP government. Like many people who enter local politics, it was the well-being of her children that motivated her to get involved.
7: I became involved in partisan politics uh, when my children were young, very young. I um, ended up being involved in a situation with a cooperative uh, nursery school that wasn't being run properly and didn't have people that were operating it with the right qualifications. So I got very involved in that. I met a group of people um, during that time period and uh, then I became political with the NDP, uh, politically active, partisan-wise, with the NDP back when my children were little in the 80s.
4: Ramona was no newbie when it came to politics. She had political street smarts. She was ready for the comments and criticism that would result from tough decisions she would have to make, but there was another form of criticism that she wasn't exactly ready for.
7: In my case, my hair was commented on continually. And, and you'll actually, if you go and read blogs or comments or whatever, like. When my hair has nothing to do with politics, people would make a comment about my hair. What women wear, people made a comment. They make comments on women's size all the time. People feel quite justified if you're a politician to say right to your face, oh, you've put on weight, or um, I had just given a speech with the lieutenant governor gave a speech I gave a speech at this uh, event one evening and the woman came over to me and I and I, sh- I thought she was going to come up and speak to me because I thought my speech was fantastic and people were like oh yeah we didn't know that was going on and because the people had heard about what they could perceived as, nothing happening in the schools when we're talking about these are all the things that are happening in schools talked about options and opportunities and and other things that were happening and this woman was coming up and i thought she's going to say oh this is so good that there's these opportunities for our children and she goes your roots are showing that's that's what i got and i'm going Would they have gone up to Sterling Bellevaux or someone else, like if he's talked about fisheries and go, you need a haircut? No, you don't hear that kind of thing, but I get it all the time, all the time. And I get it at the market, Uh, you know, sad people say, oh, oh. You're not you're not as tall as I thought you were. I mean, and that one I can kind of live with because I actually am a lot shorter than people <laughs> think I am. Because I think you in television you look so. Yeah, and then they they find out that I'm not even hitting five foot four. Um, yeah, Lenore got got a uh, Lenore Zan gets comments about her appearance all the time.
4: Back to the podcast in a moment. Offscript is made possible by the listeners who pay for the content we produce with their donations. If you're a regular listener and you get something out of it, we hope you'll make a contribution over at offscript.ca slash donate. One of the listeners who recently made a donation is Ronald Crother. Here's why Ronald decided to chip in.
0: I'm a first time candidate uh, running in the riding of Northside Westmount for the next provincial election. And I chose to financially support this podcast because it gives people a real inside look into the mindset of former MLAs, which is a hugely valuable resource, especially for a first time candidate like myself. Keep up the great work, guys.
4: Thank you, Ronald. You can be like Ronald by going to offscript.ca/slash donate and choosing to give three, five, or eight bucks a month. Okay, back to the podcast. For Ramona, it wasn't just teasing and backhanded remarks that made life in the legislature difficult for her. At one point, she was physically threatened.
7: This one evening, it was an evening, um, I recognized that I was getting um, played. So I started to talk about schools and the school that I had visited in that person's uh, constituency and what I saw. And I talked for 50 minutes you're allowed to each person has an hour and I talked for 50 because I can use my words to protect myself and I knew that if he asked another question that it was going to be something derogatory and I thought no I'm just gonna talk it out it's probably the longest I talked without really answering the question. And the whole time I was in uh, politics, so the evening sh- shut down, you know, it was the end of the evening because you're, you're on your feet for four hours for, for that at a time. And when I walked out of the chamber, that member was raging, mad, raging, comes running around the t- turn and pushed me against the wall and said, you listen to me, girly girl, as he pushed me up against the wall. He had both hands on me and pushed me. It was seen, it was witnessed by a number of people. Someone stepped in, moved him away. So I made a report about what happened, but my report was, what do I do when this happens? Like, I mean, that person had both hands on me, they pushed me up against the wall, and they called me girly girl. No apology, nothing happened except for um, I will say that Steve McNeil um, knew about it he was it was reported to him and he spoke to the member not to do it again.
4: That's assault. She expected an apology and she reported it because she expected it to receive proper attention. All MLA's men or women have expectations when they start out in politics and usually
1: you you expect your position to receive respect, you know, because it's not you, it's your position, and I think there has to be respect for that position. But I think some ministers and some MLA's think that it's a personal thing, and I tried not to make it a personal thing. I didn't want people to to treat me any different than Eleanor Norrie that I always was. But I did expect some respect from a point of view that I was the minister of the crown, you know, mm. that I was in a, that position as deserves the respect.
4: Eleanor Norrie was the MLA for Churro Bible Hill in the late 90s. She told us about the condescending tone that she experienced as a woman during question period, and one moment when that condescension became an aggressive display.
0: Around the cabinet table, around the caucus table, or in the legislature, were there... Yeah, I guess, would you have been treated
1: differently in that space as well? A couple of times. Yeah, you know, a little condescending, you know, especially the experienced former cabinet ministers that were in opposition, you know, who knew more than than any of us did in our cabinet. You, you'd get that strictly from a, just a, you know, we know more than you do point of view, or then as a woman.
4: As a woman, Eleanor quoted a former minister during question period and was promptly informed by him that she had no right to use his words.
1: And I had a quote from a former minister that I used. I managed to get it through the department and sort of threw it back in my answer. And that former cabinet minister was so mad at the end of question period, just as the speakers were changing to the deputy speaker, and I was sitting right right by the speaker's table. He came right around to my desk and pounded my desk, and just you know, I had no right to throw that at. Like just, I mean, he would never have done that to a man. But the speaker didn't see it, or the deputy speaker claims they didn't see it happening. And when we when the house went into the committee, the whole I stood up at a point of privilege and mentioned it, but uh, you know, and, and I took exception to it and demanded an apology. Now it didn't uncame, and the speaker didn't see it, so they didn't rule on it. But the next day, I got an apology. I mean, it was, it was just, you know. So I don't I, you know. And, and the, All the women in the house at the time wanted me to join forces with them and really make an issue out of it.
4: Eleanor didn't much like the idea of joining forces with what I've been calling the woman party.
1: Sandy Jolly was also in cabinet and uh, is a female. So the two of us, uh, we tried not to join forces. At least I tried not to. I didn't want to, you know, this, to, uh, I tried to be part of the whole. I, I had difficulty with
4: that. And Trying to be part of the whole was an important decision that women struggled to manage. Even before winning a seat in the legislature, Michelle Raymond described her worry about being an unmanageable candidate.
6: One of the things that, um, unnerved me at the beginning was the camp, the person who was my campaign manager, um, arrived one day talking about somebody else uh, as an unmanageable candidate. And I thought, oh no, am I going to be an unmanageable candidate? I must not be an unmanageable, unmanageable candidate, you know, I must be <laughs> decorous and well-behaved and compliant and all the rest of it. And I, and I was. <laughs>
4: so- Fitting in wasn't a concern we heard from male MLAs as often as we did from women. Sometimes the women we spoke to told us about decisions they made to distance themselves from the women's movement in order to fit in and present themselves as part of the whole. MLAs always have to choose between parties. But when there are more women MLAs than usual, being a woman in the legislature seems to mean choosing to side with your own party or siding with women regardless of party. Those who carefully distanced themselves from seeming too feminist participated in their parties more actively and on various levels.
3: There weren't a lot of women involved in the party, uh, but there, there were the ones who were involved and the ones that I worked with were very strong uh, and devoted people to the to the party and, and very talented and, and gave a lot in, in many different ways. And I mean, we, we had, uh, you know, the women's associations at that time, which sort of have fizzled out now into everybody being a member of the main party. But even women at that, at that part, they played a big part in the party, in support. And, uh, and a lot of other women who were you know, highly educated women who were involved
4: in the party at various levels. Yet on the other hand... Some of the women would not talk. I mean, they would just simply get upset. Eleanor Norrie had a name for the pressure of being categorized as part of the woman party. She called it the she-they.
1: I was part of the community. I was part of the we. Over there, those people that are elected are they. So it's the we and the they. Because you'll hear people say, they are doing this to us. They are like, who's they? You know, you hear that all the time, they and them. The day after I was elected, the community doesn't treat you as part of the we anymore. You're the they. So you become somebody that either they want to be with or they want to attack. Like, it's you're, you're separate apart from the community. It's just, it's, it's what happens. Then on top of that, when you're a woman, I call it the (laughs) she-they, because you become then. Not only are you they in government, you're a woman in government. And people have a hard time. People did have a hard time accepting that, especially in cabinet.
4: But not all women MLAs we spoke with agreed that gender was the reason for being treated unfairly. Some were aware of sexism in the House, but hadn't really seen themselves as targets.
6: Yes, I know there were some horrible uh, i mean there were some very unpleasantly sexist comments made by about other members uh, other women um which i only heard about i mean i don't think most of them heard so i knew that, that existed um but i don't know um you know i think it's just, it's a matter of the dynamic of the house at any given time yeah um Part of that masculine thing would be that uh, you know, heckling and so on is mm-hmm. much more of a, I, th- I think, much more of a tactic,
2: mm-hmm.
6: um, you know, just sort of putting people off their quote game.
2: That was early in the days of the women's movement too, mm-hmm. when you know, there were taunts that would come from the back benches on the other side. Sometimes we'd be along the lines of, why don't you stay home,
4: and look after your kids. And- Alexa wasn't exactly at home but she was a woman in the house, and not all women of the house felt thrown off their game by conflict. Francine Cosman clashed with people inside and outside of the House of Assembly, but told us that she never thought it was because of her gender.
5: I think it depends on the personality, and I don't think that many people run if they're not strong enough to handle the job.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: So I guess anybody who, who would have thought they could roll over me knew differently. So, yeah, I, I can't.
0: Mm. (laughs) (laughs) but you're not making it sound like a welcoming place for for
5: i didn't feel it was a welcoming place because not because i was a woman it was because i was so strong on my viewpoint about bedford not being amalgamated right and i was fighting my fight you know and you don't become popular when you fight your fight Mm -hmm. I, i i could never be a pushover and i was never intimidated by anybody so it was tough but i was tough so That made it easier, I guess.
4: Yvonne Atwell didn't seem intimidated when she described life at Province House, but she did at times say she had to play tough. She was the first female African Nova Scotian MLA. She represented the Preston area.
8: Well, I ran when the um, the new boundaries was uh, selected in Preston, and of course at that time um, the NDP was virtually unknown. Frankly, Um, it was always Liberal Tory out there, and that, that was very historical. I won the nomination by about one vote, and so that was the beginning of building the profile uh, of the NDP in that area. And so I ran, and of course I lost. I got like 500 votes, you know, probably friends and family. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I ran, and then I ran for, well, the leadership was in there. I ran for the leadership, and then the sec. Then I ran again, and that's when I won. When I won the seat.
4: It was 1998 when she finally won that seat, but when she got there, it wasn't exactly what she had imagined.
8: People, when you got up to speak, people didn't really listen, right? Um, You know, people would say, um, they wouldn't, you know, hassle me a lot openly, uh, but you could see that they were talking to each other and, and, you know, they did that with all of us basically, but I just found it, you know, that the staring at me was, I didn't know what that was about. And was
0: it just to you or would they do it to other members?
8: Well, I I noticed a, a few of them that would just do it to me, right? And uh but I figured, well you can't steer me down. You're gonna have you're the one that's gonna have to. I'm gonna pay chicken here. I was a surprise to the legislature because first black woman in Atlantic Canada really, uh, to hold a seat, um, as an MLA in, in, in opposition, right? In the house, it was, it was not a comfortable place to be, only with my colleagues, right? And there were more women there at that time. I think there was five of us or six of us. In guys. Yeah, in, uh, in, yeah, at the time. So it was, it was great the way we, uh, sometimes we would just tease the opposition and all the women would sit in the front row just for fun, stuff like that. <laughs> uh, because the men could be pretty mean, actually. Um, so for me personally, I didn't like going into the cafeteria to eat because nobody would sit with me. The only person to ever come and sit with me from the opposition was John Ham. He would come if I was there by myself. He would and if there was no other, but nobody else from my party, uh, which is really kind of silly. But he would come and, and, and sit and we'd chat and that sort of thing. But the others wouldn't, right? Sometimes they would make underhanded racist remarks, right?
4: We'll hear more about the underhanded, and in many cases, overt racism that Yvonne and other African Nova Scotian MLAs experienced in the next episode of Offscript. The challenges that underrepresented leaders face in electoral politics intersect at a crossroads between race and gender. So understanding inequities means understanding where race, gender, class, ability, and other social factors push people into the positions in which they find or don't find themselves. The short version is that there haven't been many female MLAs in Nova Scotia, but there have been even fewer African Nova Scotian MLAs, and there have been far fewer African Nova Scotian women MLAs. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Offscript podcast. This episode was written by Louise Cockrum and me, Sandra Bohm. It was edited and produced by Mark Coffin. The theme music is by Josh Spacek at Needledrop.co, and all of the other music came from Kevin McLeod at Incompetech. Tune in next week for a special episode, and in two weeks for a standard full episode. Next week, I'll be speaking with the research lead for Offscript, Louise Cochran, about how or whether sexism in the Nova Scotia legislature compares to the rest of Canada. Offscript is produced by Springtide. A registered charity working to make democracy better here in Nova Scotia. If you liked what you heard and plan to keep listening, consider becoming a donor for as little as $3 a month. You can do that at offscript.ca slash donate. Make sure to subscribe to On the Record, Offscript, and iTunes, or your favorite, whatever your podcasting app is. You can find the podcast in a whole bunch of places by searching On the Record, Offscript, in Stitcher, Google Play, Podbean, Overcast, Pocket Cast, and many more.
0: I know some of you listen to the whole podcast and still haven't sent an email, still haven't tweeted. So just a reminder, we would love for you to share with us why you listen to the podcast, what need it serves for you, and how we can serve that need better. You can email us at offscript at springtide.ngo, tweet us at springtideco, or find us on Instagram at springtide.ngo.
7: Do it.